Trump is a liar. He lied. He knows what he's doing. He lies about important things. And he gets away with it. This is what he does in the case of this environmental speech. He identifies a weakness, which probably showed up in their polling. And then he lies about his record on it. And then he gins up the right-wing propaganda machine and then usually attacks the opposing party for his original weakness. And then the mainstream media says both sides and then the average voter is confused. What's going on in Washington, D.C.? A bubbling House Democrat feud followed by a series of racist presidential tweets has unleashed chaos in the U.S. Capitol. Meanwhile, there's one thing we're not seeing much of, governing. In this episode, we look at where we're seeing attempts at climate action and where we're seeing a whole lot of climate distraction. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'm here in Los Angeles, a safe distance away from the D.C. firestorm with Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. And Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Brandon, you landed moments ago from Washington, D.C. Did you uh, emerge unscathed? I was there all week, and there is a lot of interesting conversations going on, and I was in some of them, so uh, good, juicy bad. gossip. <laughs> juicy gossip. I like it. Okay, good. We're going to hear more about that. How's it going, Shane? Oh, it's going great. You know, and I doubt Brandon and I are going to agree on much of anything today, but when he was on the plane, he was like working the email and the text and the Slack, and I sometimes go like a week with no response from him, so I know he's fired up, so yeah. I'm excited to hear about how DC He tweeted and... today, so we knew he was amped. That's right. <laughs> that, his tweet. annual tweet came out today. Tweet. I made a tweet. That was, yeah, I made a tweet, best phrase. Well, we were off last week because I was in Canada and then a trip to Portugal, actually, for a wedding, which was lovely. Must Thanks be nice. for asking. <laughs> yeah, we were working, but that sounds great, yeah, though. Sure. Well, everyone's entitled to vacation. Um, but what was crazy is while I was there, you know, Europe was experiencing this crazy record heat wave. At the same time, there was flooding in Washington, D.C. I looked online and people were standing on the top of their cars. And then there was this massive storm headed for New Orleans. Alaska was burning with wildfires as the Arctic experienced a giant heat wave. And man, it was just a reminder that there is never a dull moment on the apocalypse beat. Still, U.S. politics of late has probably had more news coverage than all those events combined. So let's get to what's happening at the Capitol. Earlier this month, it looked like divisions were deepening between House Democrats. Politico reported that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Representative Frank Pallone, chairman of the powerful Energy and Commerce Committee, had successfully joined forces to sideline proposals from progressive members of their party, proposals such as the Green New Deal. And then President Trump sent out a series of tweets telling four progressive U.S. congresswomen of color to go back to the countries they originally came from. House Democrats joined together to roundly condemn his statements as racist in a vote that passed with support from just four Republicans and one independent. The tweets themselves don't relate to climate, but the current political atmosphere in D.C. does. So where do House politics stand now? Where does the overall political scene stand now? Brandon, what do you think? Do you think the Trump tweets have caused Democrats to align? Or is this just a massive distraction that's making deeper divisions? And ultimately, on the issue we care about climate, it's even further away from seeing action. I have several thoughts on this. You know, one, I had a long dinner with a member of Congress uh, who's an old friend. Uh, and this person has been to the border 
And so it was really interesting to hear firsthand account from somebody who has uh, seen the human rights abuses that are happening down there. And I can and tell that's you that because that that vote, just for some context, was part of the the division among House Democrats. Correct. Can you just remind us of? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was a spending bill to get money down there for humanitarian aid for migrants. Um, some of the progressives thought we should have fought a little bit harder. There are some tactical reasons for um, not doing that, that more of the establishment folks, you know, believe was the better course. Uh, but that's sort of what started it all. And I can understand where they're coming from. If you have been down to the border, just hearing it from this member of Congress, I mean, it's really awful. And, uh, you know, the things that the president is saying, these tweets, they do have consequence because they give permission for when you dehumanize people with dangerous speech um, then these Custom and Border Patrol agents, they feel like they have permission to treat these people very poorly. And so there is consequence to this beyond just stuff on social media. But to your point about the Democratic, um, what's going on within the party, I do think that they're, first of all, I think it's an, an amazing opportunity for AOC and Pelosi to work together because uh, AOC is really strong on this outside game um, and has built real power um, out there. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi knows the inside game, you know, but better than almost anybody. So to me, it's like a perfect opportunity for the speaker to take a young talent under her wing and AOC could help her with the outside game and uh, modern ways of communicating that I don't know. And uh, I made and, a tweet <laughs> and the speaker, you know, can teach uh, some of our younger progressive and new members like how to you know, whip votes. Um, so that's what I would like to see. I think that there are some divisions that are on policies. You know, that's okay. I think there are some divisions that are not just Democrat, Republican, or moderate progressive, but new guard, old guard. You know, an old way of thinking versus a, a new way of thinking, establishment versus, you know, on like, all kinds of issues. On all kinds of issues. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, bleed over into climate a little bit. I mean, James Clyburn, who is in the leadership from South Carolina, he's been in Congress forever, recently said, you know, if you think you're going to get off natural gas and fossil fuels in the next, you know, oil in the next couple decades, like, I'm not for that. I'm not part of that. Uh, this was in his sort of pushback on the squad. And uh, that's a very old guard, I think, way of, of viewing uh, things. And so uh, the Trump tweets, have they united? The, yeah. Definitely. These tweets are putting people in danger. Um, they're hurting people. They People like in the squad, they get increased death threats when this happens. I don't know why you would do that to anybody. It's like they remember who the common enemy is and who the true enemy is. And, and that is uh, Donald Trump. Two things. First, we have to say that the so-called squad is made up of representatives Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib. Second, you know, we started this conversation talking about the Green New Deal getting sidelined because of the split among progressive and more centrist Democrats. And I guess despite what you're saying, Brandon, I think I would be very surprised if the unity among Democrats today translates to policy action, not because there's no will, but because the tweets seem to have derailed any attempt at productivity on honestly both sides of the aisle. Washington, D.C. is now so consumed by this issue and so focused on the election in 2020 already that there's virtually no space to talk about legislation. So I don't know, but I bet climate change gets shoved even further down the to-do list because of chaos like this. 
Well, and that, that's what I wanted to address, Juliet. The real issue to me is always when I'm watching, you know, both for my work and just from a personal perspective, the legislative process and how this impacts that. Now, I think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, excuse me if I mispronounced that, Ayanna Presley, I think these individuals are deeply unpopular and more deeply unpopular than the president with the American public. So my concern is, as someone who wants to fight climate change and who wants to mainstream this discussion, someone who wants Republicans to be on board, Democrats to stay on board, and to fight towards you know reasonable solutions, if you make some of the most unpopular people on earth the face of this effort, I think the likelihood of reaching resolution goes down. So just to clarify your comment, uh, some recent polling showed that members of the so-called squad had low, really low favorability numbers. But, you know, the Green New Deal has actually pulled quite high across party lines. So I just want to add that not everything is super cut and dry on the popularity front. But anyway, I think you're going somewhere else with that. I just want to make the point that there are Republicans and Democrats doing really thoughtful things that no one's talking about. We're talking about racism a great deal. We're talking about the Green New Deal a great deal. No one is talking about actual proposals that could be put into U.S. law and really help solve this problem. So Senator Alexander, advanced nuclear, natural gas, carbon capture, better batteries, greener buildings, electric vehicles, cheaper solar, fusion, advanced computing, and double energy research funding. He's got more detail on each of those, and, and I would ask people to go look at that. You've got Senator Udall, 50% renewable energy by 2035. You've got Senator uh, Tina Smith from Minnesota, net zero emissions by 2050 in the sector. You've got Elizabeth Warren, who I think is, is really impressing some people with her policy prowess, talking about how the SEC and other financial regulatory institutions should be having companies account for their climate uh, liability, not just for you know the risk, the climate risk, but also the risk to their business models and uh, of future climate changes with extreme weather, fires, all those sorts of things. So you have people who are thinking of real ways to attack what I think is a very serious problem, and I and I really think that if we say you either follow AOC or we burn the planet down, we're going to burn the planet down. Whereas if we can just ignore these people for five minutes and look at some of the good work that's being done in Congress, we might actually get somewhere. I think though that nothing is going to happen. Prag practically speaking, until after the 2020 election. I don't think anyone's really expecting D.C. gridlock to suddenly go away until I think the, you know, the makeup of Congress changes, the mood changes, there's a little more uh, desire to work together. A hundred percent. But look, you don't introduce bills and then pass them. Most bills languish for two or three Congresses before they get passed. But you hold hearings, you build support, you get trade groups on board, you build a bipartisan you know, coalition. All these things need to be done. You don't just say, hey, let's go 50 percent renewable. And everyone says, I, that's not how it works. And we're not doing any of that because we're fighting about who's racist. Is it Donald Trump? Is it Nancy Pelosi? Is it the people who are calling everyone racist? I don't want to talk about that. I want to solve the problems that we have. Well, there are people still working on it. There are all the bills that you mentioned, uh, and then there are also initiatives to try and extend or increase the tax credits for renewable energy. The, the industry is pushing for that. There are also initiatives to try and extend tax credits for all kinds of low-carbon resources. Uh, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has a bill out on that called the Clean Energy for America Act. But, you know, as you say, a lot of these initiatives just aren't getting the oxygen they need to grow. And even sometimes renewables and clean energy technology got caught up in politics. Um, there's a story out in Green Tech Media by Carl Eric Stromsta where he quotes a source as saying that the average member of Congress doesn't have a clue what storage is, why it's important, and why you'd want to incentivize energy storage right now. Uh, they just hear tax incentive for renewable energy, and that means good or bad in their mind. So even without the drama of the hour, there's a long way to go to getting these bills done. I was going to say, I mean, it it's been too long since the Congress has done 
anything on this. And the last time was like 2005, 2007, where they passed comprehensive, you know, energy legislation that was with George W. Bush as the president. So this is why this guy is such an outlier. I mean, it's causing why Trump is an outlier. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, the bills you're talking about, there could be, I think he's the reason why we're not able to have these serious discussions on them. I mean, that might be true, but, but, you know, so when I was in, in working on Capitol Hill, my first job, and this is true and it's anecdotal and it goes back to what you were saying earlier, we had a constituent that would constantly call and say, what did Glenn Beck say last night that you disagreed with? What kind of question is that? And then I said, look, I don't watch Glenn Beck. He said, well, I'm going to send your office a DVR. I want you to record Glenn Beck every day. And then I want you to tell me what the congressman agrees with and what he disagrees with. That's not fair. Nor is it fair to have all Republicans account for every tweet that Donald Trump sends. I think we have to be able to walk and chew gum. You have to let Trump do whatever it is he does because he's the president of the United States. And we have to be able to focus in a bipartisan way on solving the problems that we have. Because you and I fighting about Trump tweets doesn't get us any closer to clean energy legislation. Also, though, I mean, even the clean energy legislation that we're talking about, even the bipartisan ones have maybe one Republican, maybe two. It's not even really bipartisan. We're not even seeing that much traction There's behind process, the scenes. Right. So when you introduce a bill, you have a co-sponsorship form and you can circulate that as widely or as narrowly as you want. There is a process to legislating. And that's what I've been trying to get through to our audience for the last two years. It's not just like, here's a cool idea, the Green New Deal. That's not actually a bill. Even if everyone voted for it, it wouldn't become a law. There is a process to legislating. And I'd like to see us focus on that a little bit. Yeah, I think post 2020 is when people will have some more hope for that. And even then, it's it's a crapshoot. Uh, in the meantime, you know, I think that President Trump deflects quite well from his own record by creating these, you know, big media storms. Things about America's debt is about to hit a new record high. Uh, there's also an ongoing trade war with China and other international issues that are flaring up. We're seeing the ongoing crisis at the southern border. Not all his fault, but this is something you want your president to address. And then relevant to our coverage is is the uh, speech touting his record on the environment when federal data show that air quality improvements have actually stalled and that the U.S. has had more polluted air days over the last two years than just a few years earlier. So I actually want to dig in further to that speech and hear what you guys have to say about it. So let's go there now. Earlier this month, President Trump gave an hour-long speech on the environment, outlining what he called America's environmental leadership under his command. Some experts saw the speech as a stark example of the disconnect between Trump's rhetoric and reality, because, as many news outlets have pointed out, the speech was riddled with inaccuracies. Trump claimed that U.S. air quality has improved since he took office, but in fact, carbon emissions and air pollution have actually increased during his term. He called himself a protector of public lands, despite signing off on the largest rollback of federal land protection in the nation's history. Trump also repeated a false claim that the Green New Deal will cost $100 trillion, which is a figure that exceeds the economic output of all countries on Earth. And the list goes on. So, Shane, what did you think of the president's remarks? You work on environmental issues for Republicans, so uh, what did you think of his claims? And I should add that not all of them are false, but, but he did reference many benefits, the policies for which were put in place before he even took office. Meanwhile, he's used his authority to roll back many environmental rules. So what do you make of it? 
So I have one major takeaway that I'll get to in a second. A couple of small things I want to touch on is that that $100 trillion number was actually a $93 trillion number. And just so our listeners know, the vast majority of that was on the universal health care part of the Green New Deal program. So the energy programs that they're promoting actually didn't have a price tag nearly that high. And I think that's important when we start to think about legislating. What exactly do we want to do from the energy and environmental perspective? And how much does that cost? Because I think those numbers will be a lot more palatable to most Americans. Uh, second, does Trump have a perfect environmental record? No, of course not. I don't agree with anything that he's done on climate. I don't agree with anything that he said on climate. Um, but we did get a Twitter question from a listener the other day, for example, who said, does the president, and I don't mean this president, but any president, have executive authority to build transmission lines that allow clean energy to get to far off places that don't have access to it? And the answer is President Trump has tried to do those things, right? By streamlining certain regulatory processes and NEPA and through executive orders on infrastructure. There's also uh, the regulatory proposal that EPA put out earlier this year, the once in, always in program. And what that basically means is if a facility is regulated as a major source of pollution, even if it makes changes that make it that wouldn't fit that threshold, they're always regulated that way. Now, the reason I think what Trump did in that regard is good for the environment is because some facilities want to invest in efficiency equipment or new um, scrubbers or things that can make a plant actually more environmentally friendly, but the cost of doing it when it's treated as a major source uh, are too high and they're prohibitive. So people are actually not making positive investments in the environment based on outdated regulations. So he has done a couple good things. I don't think he's done anything positive on climate. But I think the bigger picture here, my takeaway as someone who likes to watch the policy and the politics are his internal polling is clearly showing that people care about this. Someone in his office said, sir, I know that this isn't the number one issue for our administration, but we are losing voters. We're losing voters that we need if we want to win an election. They care about the environment. They care about climate. They care about all these things. You got to get out there and talk about your record. That's actually really encouraging to me, not because I thought the speech knocked him dead, but because someone in the White House recognizes this is not an issue to be ignored and it's not an issue to be mocked. It's going to be an issue in the next election. And they're asking the president to embrace it. So that, that's a silver lining to the extent that I can have one. I agree with Shane on the motivation for the event. I, I think that's probably the only silver lining in this is that they must be seeing something in the polling that forced them to do this. Um, the way that Julia explained it is the way that most people in the media talk about it. They say things like, you know, what the president said was inaccurate. But uh, the reality is, uh, no, Trump is a liar. He lied. He knows what he's doing. He lies about important things. Um, and what I can't he gets away with it. What, what just I cannot get my head around is, you know, parents with their children, like lying is such a fundamental threshold thing. Like, you know, it is a character issue that, you you know, you instill in your kids. The president lies every single day uh, and uh, repeatedly. And I, it, it is so frustrating. This is what he does in the case of this environmental speech. He identifies a weakness, which probably they showed up in their polling. And then he lies about his record on it. And then he gins up the right wing propaganda machine and then usually attacks the opposing party for his original weakness. And then the mainstream media says both sides and then the average voter is confused. I, I would so I would disagree that the mainstream media represents both sides of any issue. I think that it would be very, very difficult to prove that claim. Well, what do you, you mean? At- well, hold on. Lots of things being said here. What do you mean by both sides? Just to be clear. I mean, the mainstream media will say Trump said this, um, you know, and he leveled this attack and, and about the Democrats. They'll repeat it. And, and then what voters hear is, 
oh, there's this dispute. And it's a both both sides are, are like fighting and, and calling each other, like saying that the other side is wrong. I don't think the left has any issue with getting a sufficient amount of mainstream media to support their position. What I do think the left has an issue with is I will agree with you that Trump's record on the climate is not what I want to see. I hope if he gets a second term, he'll do better. And I hope whoever occupies the White House next, whether in two years or six years, will do better as well. But what I will say is. The economy is flourishing. He's doing something right. And I think what Democrats are going to learn is you're going to have to start giving him credit for the things that he is doing, or you're going to have to live with him for, for six more years. But there's no scenario where you can say he lies about everything, he does everything wrong, but our economy is growing exponentially, the market's hitting record highs. Uh, you know, people like him better than they like the squad, right? So there is a point where we can say his record on the climate isn't perfect, but to say he lies about everything and he's doing everything wrong that's going to leave you in a place that you don't want to be back in the House minority, still in the Senate minority and under and under President Trump until 2024. Not shockingly, I disagree on the mainstream media. You know, the frustrating thing is, is that they frame it in Julia's language of it's an accurate. It, no, I wish they would say call it for what it is. It's a flat out lie. Um, and, and Shane, you know, to your, to your point, like. Obama uh, not never got any credit from Republicans for the economy doing well under him and him like resurrecting it from one of the worst financial crises that we ever when had. You got to country. ride the bush wave. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Come on now. And I and I what I think the Republicans should be careful about is these attacks that he's been making recently and these lies, he could destroy the Republican brand for a generation. It may not catch up to him in 2020. But if you look at these, like, the, here are the people that are upset with him. Educated white folks. Many, many, many women. Young people. Minorities. Like, how do you think minorities feel about some of those tweets? That is a lot of votes going forward. And it may be a, per, he may cause permanent damage to the party. You're right twice. Um, I think I'm right that, that President Trump will be reelected. Um, I think you're right that the coalition that we saw in 2018 and that we might see come out in 2020 is not a winning coalition for the Republican Party in the long term. And so I view, you know, people like me, young Republicans, I view our jobs as twofold. One is trying to get the best possible policy we can today, working across the aisle and trying to get where we want to go. Two is trying to rebuild that coalition. I mean, the way that I view the Republican Party is not probably the way that 95% of Americans today view the Republican Party. And, and I hope that I'm along, I, along with 55 million other Republicans, can, can get there. So I think I think you're right that you know, when we're talking about race more than we're talking about policy, we're not setting the party up to be in a good place in six years. But my hope is that we can get effective policy put in place now, keep the economy strong now, and that a young wave of Republican voters can sort of re-energize the party. I am curious how Trump's uh, environmental uh, policy pageant, if you will, because there were several members of his own administration that were kind of brought up on stage one after the other to sort of sing his praises. Um, you know, I'm curious if that will actually help him ultimately, because to your point, Brandon, people only catch snippets or they see it presented in a certain way. And they're like, oh, it's good to know that the president's you know, taking care of that because I do see issues in my town. I do see the, you know, there's someone who has asthma that I know. And, you know, a lot of these issues are very local. 
Um, but then again, I think of the Fox News coverage, which actually Jigger Shaw pointed to in a recent Energy Gang episode, uh, that even Fox News cut away from Trump's speech to note that he has rolled back or repealed more than 80 environmental rules and regulations, including multiple related to oil drilling, air pollution and wildlife. So when when Fox News is also, you know, cutting away from the president, you know that there's a, a sense that this is false advertising, I suppose. And then there's no answer here. I'm just wonder how this will ultimately play with voters. Well, and keep in mind, the president touts how many regulations he's repealed. So that that is not a secret. I mean, that, that's not like Fox going you know, out of school. The president says every opportunity he gets how many regulations he's repealed. And what I'm saying is he did condemn Fox News after they did this uh, segment. Well, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I didn't see that. But but what I will sure say is to, I'm sure they made up pretty quickly. Not all regulations are good regulations. And there's a lot more that I'd like to see us do. But for example, making it easier to build those transmission lines from solar fields to you know areas that are highly reliant on coal. I want that. I want those regulations repealed because I want those projects to provide the maximum amount of environmental benefit that they can. Well, another uh, development that highlights the same theme is that there's now a Republican Environmental Caucus. Members include Senator Lindsey Graham, who actually called out Trump recently for his lack of action on climate issues. So I was curious what you guys thought of that. You know, we have Trump's environmental speech on the one side, but then you do have some Republicans creating this caucus, I guess, trying to do something more tangible on climate. Unclear exactly what that their proposals are. Uh, do you guys know more? What do you what do you think, Brandon? I think it's a lot of what we've been seeing, which is all talk, uh, no action from the Republicans on this. Here's the playbook. Let's throw up some window dressing. We'll start a caucus. Uh, we'll send a tweet. But the reality is, you know, the Republicans control the Senate and the White House and many, many state governments. And there's no action happening from their side on this right now. Uh, they're not using their power to address this issue. And Lindsey Graham sort of walked. He, here's what he did. OK, he. um called the Democrats' New Deal uh, plan crazy economics, uh, adding that innovation is going to do more to solve the problem than any government mandate. Uh, Lindsey Graham has no idea what he's talking about. You need both. Uh, mandates work. The renewable portfolio standard has significantly driven down the cost of solar uh, in this country. The cheapest so is now the cheapest. You mean, you mean state? Just to be clear, you mean state renewable? State renewable. renewable. Yeah, those are mandates, right? It's a government mandate. And now in LA, just recently, a couple weeks ago, announced the cheapest solar and storage deal in history. Combined solar and storage, like. 3.3 cents per kilowatt hour. And for our listeners out there, that is much cheaper than natural gas, much cheaper than anything else that's out there. And why did that maybe happen? Well, we happen to have a mandate in California on both of those technologies. And so here's another thing he said uh, when he launched this caucus uh, is that we believe our friends on the other side care about the environment, but they care so much they're going to destroy the economy in the name of saving the environment. Uh, that is simply not true. Uh, it is a lie. Graham is using a co common Republican lie, which is aggressive government action is going to destroy the economy. Remember when the Republicans said this about the uh, Stimulus Act, the Recovery Act and Obama's, you know, Obamacare? Oh, it was going to destroy the economy. Guess what? This economy you're talking about, that's so good, you know. Oh, those things didn't didn't destroy well, voters it. replaced uh, Democrats with Republicans and we were obviously able to save everything. Now, what I will tell you is people's health care costs did go up after Obamacare. This isn't a health care pod, though. And, and I do think that 
environmental protection is critically important. I think we should be investing a lot more in addressing climate. I think we should have a lot more policies addressing climate. But I think it's also false to say that there is no regulation that's economically harmful and there is no regulation that can possibly be bad. It can be true. I don't think that's what he was saying. Well, no, but he's saying that that Lindsey Graham said, uh, allegedly, I'm reading these notes here, that um, the Green New Deal is crazy and it's going to destroy the economy. I agree with that 100%. I want to address climate as much as anyone on planet Earth, and I still think the Green New Deal is an awful policy that, if adopted, would destroy the economy. Both things can be true. What is Lindsey Graham's plan? Shane, do you know? No, I don't know. Well, I don't know why you guys put me on the spot to defend individual human beings. What I'm saying is the Green New Deal would <laughs> destroy the economy. The show. <laughs> that is that's a fact. And, and the reality of it is that I don't know what Lindsey Graham's plan is. But what I do know is caucuses, while you know, relatively meaningless in most ways, uh, are helpful in, in this. So if we had a bill, for example, a bipartisan bill that that we'd worked on with a bunch of stakeholders and wanted to go talk to a group of Republicans, you'd have to go one by one. So having a caucus of 18 people if for no other reason can be helpful because you can say, excuse me, sir, can I come present what we're doing to your caucus? Now we get to talk to 18 senators who have said they care. I'm making up that number, by the way, who have said they care about environmental protection or they care about climate. We get to present them with an idea. And that's a much better, smoother process than going office by office to the Senate Hart Russell building and just trying to, to find out who cares and who doesn't. So I just want to add that this is not a theoretical debate. There's evidence of this. So when Graham says, you know, the Democrats are going to destroy the economy in the name of saving the environment, these states with the best economies in this country happen to have the best environmental laws and strongest you know, environmental laws on the book. California, New York, Massachusetts. So you know, this is not hypothetical. The last thing that he said, uh, he said, Democrats have been too alarmist about climate change. He said, you don't have to ground all the airplanes and kill all the cows. More Republican lies. No Democrat believes that. It's not nobody. Nobody believes it. But, you know, putting up the straw man again, that is fake. Well, whoever built the Q&A believes it, even if that's just one Democrat. Let me ask you this, because I, I knew you were going to bring up the FAQ. So okay. Someone wrote that. So Brandon can't say no one believes that. He can say only one person believes that, but he can't say no one believes so, that. So let me ask you this. When you write a memo to a client and you send that memo to the client, okay, and then if the client accidentally got a draft that you had, um, would they be able to rely on the draft or would they rely on the formal memo that you sent? They would definitely rely on the formal memo, but they would be able to say, at least we know what Shane thinks because he put it in the draft yeah. before we told him it was stupid and took version. it out. You may have like changed. It may have been a joke. <laughs> well, the FOQ was a joke. I'll the give FAQ you that. The FOQ lives to see another day. Can I just state like very, very clearly that I agree that environmental protection and economic productivity go hand in hand, and I do not believe they're at cross purposes at all. I'm not defending Senator Graham. I'm simply saying that I am comfortable saying that the Green New Deal, if adopted wholesale, would completely destroy the U.S. economy and that you can have an incredibly strong economy and incredibly strong environmental protections. I'm saying both are true. I'm not taking a side in that argument. Let's just get back to what we know is happening. The Republicans have formed a caucus on the environment. Brandon is suggesting- I have no confidence in it based on what Senator Graham is saying. That's my point. And I, and I also don't have confidence that they're going to generate productive legislation. I do have confidence that it's a forum if there are productive ideas out there where you can get a group of senators together who have at least said that they want to be open to these ideas and you can present them because that's going to be a much less hostile audience than going to people who you know say climate change are a hoax and trying to pitch them a climate solution. Let's move to our final section. 
And now let's do our final piece on updates from the campaign trail. There are, of course, a ton of developments, but one of the most interesting ones is that Tom Steyer, the notable uh, billionaire and climate activist, has entered the Democratic primary. Brandon, what do you make of Steyer's involvement? Is this going to help climate issues get more attention, or is this actually just going to distract? No, I'm a fan of anybody getting into the presidential campaign who's making climate change the number one priority, which is what Steyer's doing. And he has the resources to get some attention to that issue. You know, Jay Inslee has been putting out wonderful plans that I wish would get more attention. But when you throw $100 million um, out there, which Jay Inslee does not have, that can that can really help. And and we but why doesn't Steyer just support Jay Inslee then? I don't know. Um, I, I I don't. But what I do know is that we need to make climate a top issue in this campaign. We need to bring this to the voters. We need to get them educated on it. And we need to build political will in this country to get this passed in the next Congress. And that's how you do it. But I am just curious how entering a primary really does anything. Yeah, sure, you get some media attention, but it, it just creates more headlines with more names that I don't think everyone has the attention span to follow. Why not run for a lower office maybe and actually legislate on the issue? Or, I don't know, do another kind of campaign where you have already seen success. I just kind of feel like there's an endless number of Democratic primary candidates now, and it's kind of becoming too much to handle. Yeah, so I couldn't disagree with Brandon Moore. And interestingly, you guys might remember when we had our pre-production call yesterday while Brandon was gallivanting around D.C., I said, I don't know, I haven't talked to Brandon about this, but I'm sure he's going to agree with me. And I turned out to be wrong. Um, I think it's awful for climate, and here's why. Uh, climate is a front-burner issue on the campaign trail right now. That's not going to change. You know, If they talk about it less at debates, the grassroots are going to go nuts. This issue is going to stay at the forefront. What Tom Steyer had promised to do, and let me be clear that I'm happy he's not doing it, but what he had promised to do was spend $200 million on congressional races. Now he's saying he's going to spend $100 million on his own race. I can't help but think that some of the money he was going to try to plow into Congress is instead going to be plowed into him. So basically, he's going to spend $100 million elevating an issue that doesn't need him to elevate it and take probably $100 million out of congressional races where this issue is not front and center, and it could be if he put his money forward. So I'm not in any way complaining that congressional Democrats are going to have less money, but I do think it's actually a negative net overall for climate as a discussion point during the elections up and down the ballot. I think that's a you know fair point, but a hundred million dollars, uh, where the spotlight you know the spotlight of the presidential campaign is very bright, and a hundred million dollars you know on this issue will raise its profile. Okay, the one other campaign-related item I wanted to address was that the New Republic published an op-ed about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is also running in the Democratic primary, and it was a it was widely condemned as offensive. Pete Buttigieg is openly gay, and the piece read as a personal attack on his sexual orientation. And this is relevant to us because it ended up leading to the New Republic pulling out of a climate summit that they were planning to host in September in partnership with Gizmodo. And it had several other organizations that were getting involved, and it was actually going to be the response to the DNC not allowing a climate debate. They were instead going to have this climate summit presented by these journalists who cover climate and other, again, affiliated organizations. And so now, you know, the New Republic's pulled out and the one chance at maybe having all the candidates address climate in a standalone setting has maybe been undermined if it even if ultimately follows through, which it sounds like Gizmodo is still committed to doing. But, you know, we'll see how this unfolds, I guess. Do you guys feel like this is a real opportunity lost? Any thoughts on this? 
I, mean, I think it's just awful. First of all, I actually read the article before I saw the media backlash and was just stunned by it. So I think it's terrible. And what's wildly unfortunate from a climate perspective is, in addition to the fact that this is just a human being being terribly mistreated for reasons unknown, it took away the one opportunity, at least so far, that we've seen to have a lot of major environmental groups and a lot of major media backers push out sort of a climate forum. Now, I and you guys have always offered these candidates to come on our pod and have this conversation. But this seemed to be a forum that people were going to get behind. And because one person who seems to have a bone to pick with a certain sexual identity wrote a terrible, terrible article, the entire country loses an opportunity to hear what a wide range of candidates think about uh, climate change. I would not, you know, rule out that the DNC may, you know, have a presidential debate on climate. They're voting in August. I met with Sunrise while I was in D.C. this week. Um, we talked about uh, their operation to build political support to persuade the voting members of the DNC to vote for this resolution to have a, a debate on climate. I, when I worked on the Obama campaign, part of my job, um, we were in that delegate by delegate, you know, fight uh, with Hillary. We had to come up with a whole operation, a super delegate strategy, because, um, you know, those are the those are the people who vote to elect the nominee are the delegates uh, in the DNC. And so uh, worked with Sunrise and we um, hopefully will have success uh, in this, you know, operation. Uh, there's going to be lots of calls being lobbed into, you know, DNC members to try to persuade them to do this. But I'm really proud of these young activists. They're organizing and they're building power and they're figuring out how to use that power. All right. And now it's time for our final segment of the show. If you can't say something nice where a Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party, which I think is going to be a tough one this week. Brandon, do you have anything? I'm boycotting this week. <laughs> this is your mulligan? Well... I'm really wrestling with it. I told my wife as I was running out the door um, that I was running to go record the podcast. And I said, I'm not going to say anything nice this week. And uh, she encouraged me to not do that. Uh, and I try to listen to my wife. And we had a discussion about norms. And I'm like, the Republicans always break the norms and they don't have any consequences to it. So I don't care if I'm breaking the norm of this segment. I mean, I do have something. I, I was proud that our sponsor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, put out a great statement about Trump and what Trump's been saying about race. And so I was proud to have, you know, somebody that, you know, very important to our show. You know, I admired what he said. So what exactly did he say? He called it an un-American attack, which is, I think, really true. I mean, this is not who we are. This is not American. And so I thought the way he framed that I really agreed with. So I guess I'm still saying something nice. I wanted a boycott. I couldn't do it. <laughs> Shane? Well, first of all, I'm glad that Brandon came around. In our show notes, he was not going to say something nice. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm i very encouraged. I wanted to go second so that I could scold him. But but what Can I will say... Can I just say, read the show notes? I'm boycotting this segment this week. Republicans suck. <laughs> so here's... I mean, that is funny, though I disagree. But what I, what I would say is that... Everything is getting so bad right now. It's so politically hostile. Brandon is one of the reasonable ones. I like to think that I am too. And if he gives up, then who knows like who the hell else is giving up that's less rational than Brandon. So I'm encouraged that he has not fully given up on bipartisanship yet. Uh, for my say something nice, 
I'm saying something nice about Representative Emanuel Cleaver. Uh, he was chair during the debate. Uh, so he was the acting speaker, you know, for our listeners who don't understand what sitting in the chair is. Uh, during the debate on the uh, anti-Trump resolution, uh, Pelosi violated House rules. Uh, the parliamentarian ruled against uh, Nancy Pelosi. And Emanuel Cleaver vacated the chair. Now, I'm not sure if he vacated the chair because of Republicans or because of Democrats, and I don't care. What I care about is that he's an institutionalist. I get made fun of by my political climate team here for being sort of rigidly in adherence with all posted rules, regulations, and laws. It's just the way I think. And so Cleaver basically said, I'm abandoning the chair. He did say, I'm abandoning the chair, which has never happened in the history of the U.S. Congress, at least as far as it's been documented, because he couldn't stand all the vitriol, is what he said. He couldn't stand the way that members of Congress were behaving. He didn't single out either party. But that sort of where I live... I'm in that space. I've never thought a whole lot about Representative Cleaver in the past. I don't really know a lot about his history. But the fact that even in these times, he could say, I'm not willing to oversee a process that's this disrespectful was just really encouraging to me. It makes me feel like there are people out there who genuinely care about the norms, who genuinely care about process and procedure and, and just a basic sense of decency. And that made me very happy. So thank you, Congressman Cleaver. Well, it is our norm to end the show in this way. Thank you for listening. This is Political Climate. And remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and almost anywhere you can find podcasts at all. We're also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. Thank you to Victoria Simon, our producer, for making this show possible. We will be in Sun Valley next week. We're going to be speaking on stage at the Sun Valley Forum. So if you still have time to go, check it out, sunvalleyforum.com. Look forward to seeing everyone there. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you come out at Shane Skelton on Twitter, let me know. I'm getting in Tuesday. We'll go out for drinks. Woo! Hey, Julie, are you on Bumble yet? I hear that's a thing. <laughs> Not on Bumble. Swipe right or left. I don't know which one's the right one. I'm glad. <laughs>